I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. A weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Come correct with Maximum Firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello. This is Maximum Firepower. And as we are doing on this round of Maximum Firepower, it's a top ten list. My guest today is Billy Bragg. Billy, how are you? It's so lovely to it's see you. It's great to see you and hear you as well, Tom. It seems such a long time. But then it's been a long time for all of us. It's been, yes, it it's has been, been two years, two, well, more than two years since I've been in America, which is the longest ever for me. Yeah. You know, I've yeah. been averaging the last you know, three decades, you know, a couple of times a year. It's like, yeah. you know, people ask me about America. I say, yeah, it's where I work. It's great. Yeah, you, know, exactly. it's just, you know, and it's, and I, I you know, and, and the American people have been so good to me over the years supporting me, but it's like, you know, I sometimes wondered, you know, where we were in the depths of it, whether it ever come back, but I'm booking up a tour for the autumn. So hopefully, Hopefully. Well, hopefully we'll see you then. Yeah. As yeah. we were saying before we began recording, like I've spent great swaths of my adult life hanging out and rocking with Billy Bragg, and it's uh, <laughs> and I've missed it. I've missed it in, in, yeah. uh, across many continents, uh, exactly. and I've missed it, so it's nice to at least be chatting with you. So today's top ten list is going to be our top ten sort of political moments in the history of rock and music. So why don't you start us off, Billy? What's your... Well, what's I, I think the very start here? of it for me is uh, 1956 when Chuck Berry releases Roll Over Beethoven. Mm-hmm. I've always thought this is the first political pop song. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in we, we look at it now, it's a great rock and roll song, bloody, bloody, blah. But night, back then, in the middle of Jim Crow, a young black guy with an electric guitar saying to white America, you know, you old white guys are over... It's a revolutionary idea. I mean, there have been songs that address these kind of issues before. You know, um, uh, you think of Big Bill Brunsey with uh, Black, Brown and White Blues or When Am I Going to Be Called a Man? And, of course, mm-hmm. Muddy Waters with Manish Boy. He's talking about, mm-hmm. don't call me a boy, you know, call me a man. So those there have been songs like that, but they've kind of been in the blues, you know, Billy Holiday in the in NML bluesy thing. Chuck Berry is right <laughs> slap dab in the middle of pop America. And... To have those, you know, these audits of white kids as well as, as uh, yes. you know, black kids singing along to that song, you know, it has a power. I can remember being at school discos when I must have been 11. At lunchtime, uh, they'd play songs and we'd all go into school time, and we would all sing along to Young, Gifted and Black at the top of our voices yeah. by Bob and Marcia. <laughs> Bob and Marcia's reggae version, you know? Yes, And I yes. think to myself, that's, you know, that's where multicultural society comes from. So a yes. song like Roll Over Beethoven, although ostensibly it's just about listening to music on the radio, the pointed argument that Chuck Berry makes in that song in less than uh, three minutes as well, which is amazing, uh, yeah. is really, really powerful and a standard that stood the test of time. Yeah, and it turns out he was right. Like the, fe- the fears were confirmed of those yeah. who were who were yeah, yeah. afraid of that song at the for time. Sure. Their worst sure, fears were yeah. confirmed. I'm going to pick for my first one, Bob Dylan opening for the Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Um, not everybody knows that like while Martin Luther King delivered perhaps the greatest speech of all time, earlier on in the day, Bob Dylan stood on those same steps with that same microphone and played a set. And to me, like that combination is what has been kind of like the North Star of my career and what sort of I admire in music and in culture and politics is the spoonful of sugar and a sweet melody that makes the the, the medicine go down in a way, um, which was both in Martin Luther King's voice and in the song and in the nuanced 
poetry of Bob Dylan sharing the stage on that one afternoon with all of America you know, riveted to this historical moment. Uh, and it was one that were, where there was great oratory, but there was also there were also some great songs on those steps. Yeah, well. and it's a, it's a, one of those great moments where pop touches with reality. Well, yeah. it's not something that's just going on in periodly in, in youth culture. It's not something that's, right. that's just going on, you know, on the edge of culture. It's yes. right there in the centre of it. And history is made on that day uh, yeah. by the people who are gathered together. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very, very powerful moment. And it's something that I did, you know, when we were talking about this list, I did think about Dylan because he was a huge influence on me as well. You know, mm -hmm. particularly those civil rights songs. You know, the yes. first Dylan album I really got onto was The Times Are Changing. It's such yep. a visceral mm -hmm. album. But I decided that I would, rather than go with Bob Dylan, I would go with Phil Oakes. Yes. Because I think Phil Oakes is perhaps the real political figure that people think that Bob Dylan was. He's, yes. Phil Oakes is the real great American protest singer. Yeah, he's the, one he that didn't, he's the one that didn't sell out at Newport. Well, you know, I mean, as an artist, I understand why Dylan did what he did. Right, I appreciate right, right. he did what he did. He was one of those people who was on a journey. He was moving on, you know. Yep, yep, um, yep. If I'd have only had to play the rest of my life Union songs, then I might yep. have thought, you know, okay, maybe, you know, there's other things going on here I'd like to treat. But Phil Oaks, for me, uh, is summed up in 1968 when he plays uh, in Lincoln Park in Chicago in the uh, Yippies protest mm -hmm. against the Democratic Convention in, mm -hmm. in Chicago. And Mayor Daly's police go into the park and they, they attack the demonstration, they break heads. And the reason I chose it is I think it's, it marks a watershed in the idea of youth culture and the mixture of pop and politics. Because I've always had a lot of respect for that generation, Phil Oaks' generation. In many ways, as uh, white kids, they went through a cultural revolution when rock and roll came along and black culture and white culture met and threw up, you know, all those great songs. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, we've mentioned, Elvis Presley. That They went underwent a cultural revolution that they witnessed. So when it came to a social revolution, they'd managed to change their world culturally through pop music it makes sense for them to think they could change the social world, the actual world, through mm -hmm. pop music. They didn't know, as mm -hmm. we now know, that actually music has a role to play, but it doesn't have the agency, sufficient agency, to actually bring about genuine change on the kind of level they were talking about, societal level. So that moment there is a shocking wake-up call. And it ultimately, I think, it cost Phil Oakes his life. He committed suicide in 1976. Mm -hmm. In many ways, I think, you know, what I've read about him, he took it personally that he failed to change the world because yeah. he didn't realise that we're only musicians, we're only artists. He mm -hmm. took it totally personally and, and in the end it, it killed him. And so mm -hmm. we have to learn a lesson off of Phil. The, the way that music works, it's magic, but it's not the actual music itself as the agency to, to make the change. And it's a really mm -hmm. important lesson. As I say, Phil paid for his life with it. Yeah. Well, in 1968, there were many acts who were scheduled to play, and yeah. only two didn't chicken out. One was Phil Oaks, and the other was the MC5. MC5. It was, yeah, yeah MC5. Brother Wayne. Brother, yeah, Wayne, brother, Wayne, there. brother Wayne. We're going to get to Brother Wayne a little bit later on, too. But uh, the second one on my list is Victor Hara in Santiago Stadium. And um, for those of you listening who don't know, Victor Hara is sometimes described as the Bob Dylan of Latin America. It's perhaps more accurately described as Bob Dylan was the Victor Hara of North America. Yeah, that would be um, better, yeah. You know, in some ways. Uh, but he was a poet and songwriter of the people who, um, after the CIA-backed coup in 1973, he was murdered in Santiago Stadium. But the circumstances of that murder, and while some of it may be anecdotal, the story goes like this. They've rounded up many of the dissidents, cultural dissidents, political dissidents, and they're in the 
bleachers of the stadium. And occasionally the fascists will just spray the bleachers with gunfire or they'll pick one or two out to torture in front of everybody. It's, it's a nightmarish scene that's going on. Sitting in those bleachers, Victor Hara continues to write songs and sort of sing them to the sort of raise people's spirits. He's recognized, he's brought down, they bring out a guitar and there's, it's you know, this looks, obviously this is going to be some sort of horrible trap, but there's a guitar and then they the guards sit him in the chair and they mutilate his hands and they smash his hands to pulp and they say, now, now, singer, sing your songs. Victor Hara, you know, unable to play the guitar, stands in front of the assembled and he sings the anthem of the political party of which the dead are scattered underneath mm. the bleachers there. The chorus is taken up around the stadium and it's one of the a tragic, beautiful, heroic moments in the history of, of humankind. But just sort of the idea that music can be, I mean, the one thing that the Pinochet government feared was that music did have agency. You know, and that a singer yeah. like a singer like Victor Hara did have agency, mm. so much so that they had to kill him uh, because yeah. of it. Uh, but that but that last moment, he was sprayed by bullets later that day, and uh, and only decades later have his some of his killers been brought to justice. But that sort of moment of of knowing that all is lost for now, but a song can still be sung that will maybe talked about decades later and a moment of heroic resistance is yeah. I mean, I think that list. you know you you touch on something that music is very good at there, and that is building solidarity. That is the real power of music. And that's true whether it's a political song or whether it's a love song. You know, you might yep. hear someone on the radio singing a love song and it feels like they've been reading your diary or something. Mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, well, shit, I'm not the only person who's been through this. Maybe mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. such a bad thing. And it's the same with, with the politics of it as well. You know, if you're a, uh, a non-binary kid and, you, you know, you hear a song celebrating aspects of that or you see someone in a video dressed in that way, you know, David Bowie helped a lot of people yeah. in the 1970s in the UK and that kind of... Me- yeah, it does. But it just doesn't... Um, while it inspires people to, to make change... You know, we have to be careful that we don't get the impression that the music is going to do it. And you've done your bit because you bought your Billy Brad record. Mm-hmm, That's it. Mm-hmm. That's always yes, the yeah, thing yeah. I used to worry about. I yeah, used to yeah, worry yeah, about yeah. trying to make sure the audience go home having taken responsibility for all the shit I've just sung about. That's what exactly. I was always trying to do. You know, <laughs> we, we do this together. You know, people come up to me after the gig and say to me, keep doing your bit, Bill. And I'm like, yeah, I've just done my bit, mate. You've just seen me do my bit. You've got to do your, you've got to do your bit now. It's up yeah, to the, you now. The melodic baton has been yeah, passed yeah. now, like, scoot, scoot. Well, scoot. for what? me, the, the, yeah. that baton was passed in um, 1978 in Victoria Park in Hackney, uh, which was where The Clash played on the first Great Rock Against Racism march. Now, in a bit of context... At the time, the National Front, which was a far-right one, neo-Nazi party, came third in the London Council elections uh, a couple of years before. And there had been a lot of punks wearing swastikas and, and stuff was going down that was really, really disturbing. And Rock Against Racism got together uh, and decided to have a demo. They didn't know how many people would turn up. 100,000 people turned up. And I went along, you know, that event really changed my perspective on the world. And this is why I base my idea on how music does affect change is for my own personal experience, because a number of things happened on that day. Firstly, and most importantly, I realised I wasn't the only person who cared about this stuff. When I got to the park and there was 100,000 kids like me, I was like, OK, this is what this is going to be my generation. This is we're going to define ourselves like the previous generation defined themselves in the Vietnam War. We're going to define ourselves in opposition to discrimination of all kinds sexism, racism. So that was incredibly empowering to come away from there because it kind of gave me the courage of my convictions then to realise why I was different from those older 
guys at work who were casually racist and sexist and homophobic. But also, by pure coincidence, when Tom Robinson sang his big hit, Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, which was an incredibly brave thing for a gay man to sing in, in the mid-70s in England, you get your head kicked in for that sort of thing, all these guys around me and my mates started kissing each other on the lips. <laughs> and I'd, and I'd, I'd, I'd never met an out gay man. I'm sure I'd met gay men. I was 19, but I'd never met an out gay man. Yeah. And I was like, what? So I turned around and we're standing under this banner that says gays against the Nazis. We just happened to march in front of them, you know. And so I'm like, why are these, why are these gay guys at this anti-racism gig? I'm like, what's that about? It didn't take me long to realise that actually the fascists were against anyone who was in any way different. Mm. And our cause was their cause. And that really was incredibly eye-opening to me. And I came, as I say, I came away from there. The world was exactly the same, but mm. my perspective of it had changed forever. If I can do a little bit of that every night when I'm out there, I feel I'm, I'm doing my job. I'm passing on that baton that you talked about because it, was, it wasn't really, you know, this is the key thing. This is the absolute key thing, Tom. It wasn't the clash that changed my perspective. It was being in that audience. That was the thing. It was that solidarity mm-hmm. yes, yeah. that changed my perspective. I've been listening to Clash all the time and I hadn't had that change of perspective. I'd right. heard their music. I've been inspired by it. I've seen them live. Mm-hmm. It was being in that place at that moment. The music had brought us together. That was the thing that brought me away. I probably wouldn't be doing the job I do today if it weren't for that moment in Victoria Park of Rocking and Racism. I'm Tom Morello. You're listening to Maximum Firepower. My guest today is Billy Bragg as we count down the top 10 most impactful political moments in the history of rock and roll. Okay, so my next one is uh, the Little Steven record, Sun City, uh, which it was at a time when all of the music-oriented charity events were about feeding the hungry. There was a famine going on in Africa and there's We Are the World and there's Do They Know It's Christmas. These huge, some of the biggest singles of all time as the music world was galvanized to make change. Little Steven looked at a different problem on the planet, which was the racist apartheid regime in South Africa and the um, the Sun City Resort, which would pay astronomical amounts of money for Western pop stars to come and in some ways sort of legitimize what was going on uh, underneath the apartheid regime. So this song, it was a very simple statement. It was like, we're going to boycott and not play Sun City. It's as simple as that. It's a tremendous melody, but what Little Steven did was, it wasn't just a great song. It is the most diverse cast ever assembled on a recording. It's a song that has Miles Davis and Joey Ramone. You know, wow. it has Bruce Springsteen and it has uh, Run DMC. I was a young, self-identifying activist but my music was like metal music. And I, and this made me think that there's a real world application for what we do. How we act matters. The whole idea of musicians participating in a boycott and then encouraging others to do so, to have a real world, to move the meter. Like, yeah. you know, Bishop Desmond Tutu was saying, this moves the meter. When you don't play here, when you don't buy products or whatever, Little Steven had an idea that perhaps music could very much play a role in changing the world. Yeah. Um, and it definitely and it does. A, well, I'm going to pick part. up on that because my next one is the um, 1990 Nelson Mandela concert at Wembley Stadium where Mandela actually attended. This isn't the first one, which was in some ways was a reflection of Little Stevens' uh, mm. thing, but this was more based around the specials song Free Nelson Mandela. So Jerry Dammers was kind of like our Little Steven, if you will. Mm-hmm. And 
that although that had come out in the 1980s, it wasn't until 89 that Mandela was released. And he came to Wembley Stadium. They decided to come to Wembley Stadium and have a uh, a celebration and a fundraiser. And I, I want to mention it because um, it was another one of those moments like uh, Bob Dylan playing with Dr. King, where reality and pop music came together to celebrate something that taking a stand against racism, taking a stand against apartheid. It's undoubtedly true that the economic boycott of South Africa made a huge contribution to bringing down apartheid. And that was individual people making individual decisions. The arrival of Mandela when he came to Wembley is almost his way of saying, you know, yeah, music does make a difference. Mm -hmm. It does have an effect. It does make a connection. And I think it validated for a lot of people, not just those people who were able to go to the concert or those artists who made a contribution, um, but those people at home who've done their bit by not buying, you know, South African fruit or not buying, you know, I put on my, printed on the sleeves of all my records, not, you know, this record is not for South Africa. And to see Mandela there when he came to the stadium, I was fortunate enough to be there, was a, a really powerful vindication of the way that, exactly how you just described it as how music can motivate people it has mm-hmm. that role that it, it's able to generate solidarity it's mm-hmm. able to to draw people together a in a good cause to raise money but also to give them a focus of how to act you can be politicized by music it's yeah. a very powerful medium in that sense 100 percent, billy i'd have to say that another hugely important moment in the history of music and politics was what I'll call sort of the dialectic between Public Enemy and NWA. Fight the power versus fuck the police. Uh, The two greatest hip-hop acts of all time kind of squaring off in an ideological battle for the soul of pop music. At the end of the day, it feels to me like the NWA ethos is the one that commercially won the day, but it doesn't dilute in any way the power of, um, as, you know, Chuck D described it, you know, Public Enemy being you know, a news service for black America and shining a light into the corners of racial injustice where no group had ever gone before. NWA, uh, they were the sex pistols to the public enemies, the clash, and their sort of nihilistic worldview clearly touched a nerve (laughs) across the globe and their anthem, Fuck the Police, in some ways distilled public enemies, fight the power into actionable. Those are two sort of two very actionable things, fighting the power and fucking the police. Uh, And they're represented very well by hip hop's two greatest groups. Uh, And now the last one on my list is something that we it's a Domino's toppling uh, choice here uh, that began with the Tell Us the Truth tour in uh, 2003. I had begun, you know, I'd been a playing a lot of electric rock and roll guitar with two bands, Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave. But I had begun sort of like a folk singer songwriter career under the name of the Night Watchman at, at open mic nights and whatnot. But he said, we're going on this activist tour of the United States called the Tell Us the Truth tour, where in each city we'll be performing a show that will be tied into an important issue in that community. And I thought, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this. It introduced, it was our sort of rolling thunder review in a way, yeah. you know, you know, <laughs> where we, where it was Boots Riley and Steve Earle and Janine Garofalo, yeah, I think, yeah. and, you know, and you know, we would each play a set of, you know, five to seven songs, something like that. And we'd all play a couple of songs at the end. Yeah. And then the next day we would be in the community. And it was just amazing work with unions, this, that we were tear gassed down at the G. We were in Miami. Right, we? In yeah. Miami. And we were tear gas in Miami. This for me was like 
a template. I began sort of hosting Tell Us the Truth like shows, you know, monthly in Los Angeles. Then began doing a thing called the Justice Tour, which was an identical version of it, where we go city by city, artists, you know, from Slash to Jane's Addiction to Cypress Hill, you know, where they were in the dumpsters in Katrina after, in the Ninth Ward in Katrina. That led to a show at Sing Sing Prison and a very memorable day where the, out, the outcome of which was Wayne Kramer, after a conversation between Wayne Kramer and Billy Bragg, yeah. uh, Billy runs an organization, or Billy is a part of an organization called Jail Guitar Doors in the UK, which provides instruments and uses music as a rehabilitation tool in penitentiaries. And Wayne Kramer, who has spent some time in a penitentiary himself, was inspired by the conversations on that day to form yeah. Jail Guitar Doors USA, which has since helped thousands of men and women in prison and at-risk work. And so that from the Tell Us the Truth tour to the Justice tour to Jail Guitar Doors, that is my contribution to my number five. It was a really great thing to be part of uh, the Tell Us the Truth tour. It was originally around um, the government's uh, uh, broadcasting policy, wasn't it? That was yes, kind of FCC. That, yeah, 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 was, yeah. But it, it brought in so many other disparate things. And the visit to Sing Sing actually started with a, uh, it was the night before, there was a, a, a gig for, uh, for road uh, drug recovery. Rehab. Yeah, yes. that's right. Road recovery yeah. gig, mm-hmm. which I was part of. And Wayne said, oh, we're going to Sing Sing tomorrow. Do you want to come along? And I was like, yes. oh, that's cool. And yeah, then yeah. I said to him, <laughs> then I said to him, and this is classic this, I said to him, I'll do this thing in England called Jail Guitar Doors where I, I get money together and I take guitars into prison. I don't know if you're familiar with the Clash song Jail Guitar Doors. And he said to me, yeah, Bill, I'm in it. And I had a terrible moment of, of realisation that, of course, the song is about him. Yes. You know, it, it starts with, you know, talk about Wayne, my you know, friend Wayne, and he steals the cocaine. Yeah. I was so embarrassed. I was like, and I was with my <laughs> my old my old mate, Vaughn Martinian, who's a, who's a, you know, lifelong Clash fan. He could have kicked me. He could have yeah. kicked me. And the only thing I can say in my defence was, when I saw Mick Jones a year or so later, I told him this story and said, yeah. And then he said, yeah, Bill, I'm in it. And Jonesy said, is he? And he wrote it. And he wrote it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't feel I didn't feel so well, bad. But yeah, what an amazing remember, thing! Then, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, because you know what I do in the UK is is pretty much like basically I get guitars, I find people in prison, and I give them the guitars. Yeah, what yeah. Wayne is doing is so much more than that yes. because he's actually engaging in the whole process. I don't yes. have the time because I'm just one guy and I go off on tour and nothing else. Yeah. But he set up a whole yeah. amazing architecture of looking after people. And the thing is, it, it needed to be someone like Wayne. Wayne is a better candidate for this than me because yes. he's been in the system and he understands right. how it works. That's right. And he knows he knows that in order to get in, you have to kind of go with the flow mm-hmm. to work with mm-hmm. the prisons. And they're all, you know, each prison is its own little empire. And mm-hmm. you need to get in there and go with the flow to get to the place you want to go. You can't go in there like, I'm going to do this, I want to do that, push yeah. people back, you know, I'm a rock yep. star. You go with the flow. And when I saw him at Sing Sing, I was just blown away. I was yes. absolutely blown away. The way he talked to the, yeah. the men there, it was just one of those happy coincidences that we had, had that trip and that conversation. Yeah, but I mean, to tie it up with a bow, it's like it was an artist who made revolutionary music like Chuck Berry who inspired someone like Mick Jones to pick up the guitar. They write a song called Jail Guitar Doors about Wayne Kramer, which you see them play at the Rock Against Racism, which makes you do this job. You find yourself, you know, a couple decades later in a room with Wayne Kramer discussing 
the Clash song, Jail Guitar Doors, which would not have been written without him. And then he goes on a crusade to lower the recidivism rates in prisons yeah. across the United States of yeah. America. So It's incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. So music yeah. does have this, this ability to I was going to say, you may, you may have to take it back, though. <laughs> well, I do. I stand by what I said in the first place. Don't buy my records and think you've done your bit, okay? That's right. That's yeah, not absolutely. how it works. Absolutely. That Singing my song doesn't change the world. But then the logical succession of what comes from those lyrics. Mm-hmm. You've read these lyrics. What do they mean in your life? How do you use that information? How do you apply it in your, mm-hmm. in your daily life? That's where things change. But it's the audience that are changing the world. The seeds that we plant, mm-hmm. you know, they, they grow to activism. And so to issue a challenge to our listeners now, like this has been our sort of top five lists of musical moments that have been inspirational to us. You know, it might not hurt to write down a top five ways in which you've impacted your world through your job, whatever yeah. that might be. What, you know? what you've uh, done, yeah, yeah. We're all yeah. pushing, you know, and trying to think of ways in which we can make a difference mm-hmm. because we all come up against, uh, you know, those moments where we recognize injustice. You know, we have an opportunity to do something else or put a different message across. Surely it's the justification for making any piece of art is that you've got a perspective that other people don't have and you don't see reflected in the world. So you're going to have a go here and say, look, here's my take on it. Might fall flat on your face, might not, but at least you're putting it out there. That's right. Well, Billy, thank you so much. It is always lovely chatting with you. I miss you seeing you in person, playing shows with you. And I hope that we do it again sometime soon. I but... hope so too, mate. It's always great to sit down and have a chinwag with you and to, yeah. you, and to hear you playing. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, last time I remember we had a long chat about football, about your boy soccer, didn't we? At the yes. Stadium. Which yes. I was explaining you the difference between the Premier League and the Champions League. That's right. That's that, right. that was a very deep, <laughs> it very deep just... conversation. Oh, I, I, can't, I can't wait to sit around a pint and do it again. <laughs> Well, great to speak to you, mate. Yeah, you too, Billy. Take care, man. We'll see you down the road, brother. All All right, cheers. Lots of love. I'm Tom Morello. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you all. Thank you very much to my guest, Billy Bragg. This has been Maximum Firepower. Until next time, brothers and sisters, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.